about 10.30. So um, I had asked last time, as um, I think I think Lois ended our class with a comment. She said, you know, I'm still, I think I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the immutability of the moral law. Is this really something um, that we see, that we see really um, history bearing out, that this is something that we can, that we can really stand on? Um, and I'd asked you to think about that through the week and, and to continue to mull it over. Uh, Zan, I know, just shared a, a thought that she ran into something that made her think of the, the moral law. Although now I don't see Zan. Are you in here? Oh, you're right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you, I'm sorry, Zan. Would you go ahead and, and share what you... There, there was an article in a, a magazine called The Week. Some of you probably get this now. But it's titled Chaos on the Road, isn't it? Right. Chaos on the Road. On the Road, What's Gone Wrong? And talking about you know, how people are driving, how many people are killed, uh, and, and what's causing this behavior, and they're hearkening it to a lot of what's gone on in reaction to COVID, mm -hmm. and being isolated, and stuck at home. Yeah. And the one uh, sentence that really hit me was uh, oh, <clears throat> that fundamental disrespect for social responsibility is endangering us all. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it's like all hell is broken loose on this planet. It's not just here in America, it's everywhere. Right. And, and what we used to think as people caring pretty much for others mm. and what, you know, you have a responsibility enough to go driving crazily down the road to, because this is what people are doing. They're not thinking about how their uh, actions are affecting others or could affect others. Yeah. So we see, uh, thank you so much for bringing that up. And I, uh, as I looked at the front page of the San Diego Union Tribune today, I saw three articles and I thought moral law, moral law, moral law. Like they're all referring in some way to this, to this implied moral standard. And so what you, this article, we see two things that C.S. Lewis has talked about. We see number one, there is an expectation that we should be aware of this social responsibility to others. That's something that we ought to all know about and share. And yet there are all of these people doing this road rage Right, with a list of excuses as long as they're armed. Well, I'm stressed out, I'm isolated. The pandemic has like frayed my nerves. And so we start rationalizing bad behavior. But if you asked any of those road rage drivers, do you think you're driving in a respectful way? Like, are you being mindful of it? Of course they would say, well, well, no, but I have all of these excuses. So we, we I mean, that's a, that's a perfect example. Were there any other thoughts that people had or ruminations over the past week? Yes, Valerie. Uh, well, our chapters we just read tie into this. Uh, we wouldn't judge evil unless we had a sense of right. We wouldn't know there is wrong. That's right. But the thing that is on my mind is how does someone who hasn't been raised in a Christian culture see it? Yeah. And, and yet he was an atheist at one point, too. And then we were all apart from Christ at some time in our own lives, yeah. you know, in our own thoughts. But We're gonna we're gonna touch on that today, Valerie. This idea that um, that maybe morality is different outside of a Christian culture. We'll look at that. Yeah, Marie. Uh, you mentioned that we have excuses. And we yeah. have a lot of I 
nothing to excuse their behavior anymore. Mm -hmm. They couldn't care less. They couldn't care to less. To justify themselves. Yeah. It's yeah. what I'm honest, what I'm going to do. What's interesting, though, is that I think um, our morality, certainly the shared morality of a culture, has dramatically shifted from World War II, I would say, right? In, world, in, the, in that area of World War II, we would, we would still call that the era of Christendom, where there was still this, this widely recognized acknowledgement um, of, of, of fundamental truth, of absolute truth. We're now living in, in the postmodern era, uh, where uh, truth has become more subjective, most people would say, uh, and um, if there is any one truth that I would say that the, the wider secular culture could agree on, it would be do what makes you happy, right? Do what makes you feel good, do what brings you contentment and satisfaction. So there is a morality there that people are using to justify, like, well, I don't, I don't have to justify my behavior because I am who I am, you know. There, there's actually still um, a rationalization occurring there, even though, even though the morality looks very different than how it did, um, you know, 70 years ago. Uh, Gwen. Sorry, I just wanted to mention, because I feel like a few people have brought this up, like, this idea that, like, in the present day, people only go for, for what they want and have no, no sort of social sense of responsibility. I think that this kind of, like, hypothetical person of, like, the businessman who plows over everyone to get to what he wants and makes no excuses, I think this is actually kind of a rare person still mm. in the modern day. Like, how many people who you concretely know fit this, this stereotype? I think it's, it's easy to kind of see this on TV or, like, you know, and sort of things that people say, but I think that most people, even people who aren't Christian, have some sense of like, you know, the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, um, and are very judgmental. Like if, if you're doing sort of the wrong thing to do, even if the standard you would base that on is, is different than the one that they would. So, yeah. I would say there's no shortage of judgmentalism these days, which is actually a sign that we still really do believe that there's a right and wrong. Last comment, Kate, and then we'll get into our survey. Um, I think if you ask any of those people that were sinned against, uh -huh. If they, have a good reason for why they're not for why they're not doing it right now. And I was thinking too of even um, you know even the mask wearing thing, right? I mean you even you look around our church body and you can see that people have a variety of opinions just about the mask wearing. But I was thinking, you know, that even that's a that's a social convention, right, that changes as fast as the CDC uh, and the political political rhetoric changes. Um, often those are it's still tied to deeper values. Right? They're, like each sort of, whatever your opinion is on, on something as simple as this, there's, there's often still values, you know, I believe in personal freedom versus I believe um, in loving your neighbor and kind of, you know, looking out for making a sacrifice for the greater good. So we still, it is interesting because I think you, you can't get away from morality even, even when you try. Yes. <laughs> Elderly, yeah. and I am elderly, yeah. so 
we've got some new folks today. Let's go ahead, let's go like around and just say our names once again, just so that we all are getting to know one another. Uh, once again, my name is Greta. Um, Gwen, can I have you start off? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, my name is Gwen. Uh, was there, that was that, it? Okay. That's it, yeah. <laughs> This will be the disagree side. So if Anne is holding a sheet and the person said agree for number one, then she would sit over on this side. And that's, we're going to be able to kind of see what the opinions in the room look like as we go through. Okay, so question number one, or statement number one. Similar to the law of gravity, the moral law is a description of what can be scientifically observed about humans. We consistently do the right thing just as an object will consistently fall to the ground. Is that a statement you agree with or disagree with? Go ahead and indicate with a check or an X what you think on your sheet of paper. Okay, statement two. If an alien race were to observe human behavior, they would conclude that humans diligently practice justice, show love to their neighbor, and practice acts of compassion. Oh. Imagine aliens spying on us with their telescopes and binoculars. What would they observe? Okay, statement three. The moral law does not mean what human beings in fact do. Rather, it tells you what human beings ought to do and do not. Statement four, our sense of right and wrong 
is a mere fancy and easy to get rid of. Statement five, matter and space just happen to exist and they have always existed. No one knows why. Okay, statement six. There is a force behind the universe which functions like a mind. It is conscious, has purposes, and prefers one thing to another. Okay, statement seven. Science cannot answer the question of why the universe was made. controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the observable facts inside the universe. If it's outside the universe, if there's a controlling power outside the universe, it could not reveal itself as an observable fact inside the universe. We'll unpack this point more. Statement nine. This is the last one for today. The only way a controlling power outside the universe could show itself is by working within us as an influence to get us to behave in a certain way. They don't, in fact, 
do so. They know what they ought to do, and yet they don't actually do it. He says, now, why should this be so odd? Well, because normally when we talk about a law of nature, especially, we're talking about um, a description of the way things behave. The law of gravity, he points out, always does the same thing. We pick something up and it, and it falls. That is what gravity does. He says, but the law of human nature isn't describing what humans actually do. Instead, he says, it's um, the law of gravity. Sorry, let me just read this. The law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them, but the law of human nature tells you what human beings ought to do and do not, okay? So he says, in other words, when you're dealing with humans, something else comes in above and beyond the actual facts. And he says, and most of the time when you're talking about a scientific observation, you're not dealing with some other thing behind those facts, okay? He says, in most natural laws, there doesn't seem to be anything over and above the facts themselves, anything about what ought to happen as distinct from what does happen. And he gives this example. He said, you wouldn't say that something is a, a bad rock because it wasn't behaving the way a rock ought to behave. No, the rock is just doing its, it's just a rock. You might say that it's a bad rock if it doesn't work in your rockery. Ah, this is a bad rock. I need a round rock. Okay, but, but you don't mean that it's a morally corrupt stone, right? You just mean it's, it's just, it doesn't suit you. It doesn't, it's not convenient to you. But we say about certain people or certain behaviors, ooh, it's a bad behavior, and we mean something different, okay? So um, the law essentially is flipped for humans, okay? Rather than saying uh, this is how people behave, we're saying, well, no, actually, this is how people ought to behave, but actually people, people don't behave. Okay, this is a picture. Does anybody know what this picture is? Oliver, yeah, Oliver Twist. So Oliver Twist is a Dickens novel. Victorian literature is full of morality, and Oliver Twist is a very interesting contemplation of morality. So, so Oliver Twist is sort of portrayed as this very pure-hearted boy um, who is very, very poor. He's an orphan. He gets picked up by his friend, the Artful Dodger, who's a, a pickpocket, and the Artful Dodger takes him to his clan of other pickpockets. They're ruled by this sort of hilarious and corrupt man named Fagin. And um, it's this, the whole story is kind of this question of, is Oliver Twist gonna fall into this corruption? Is he gonna go with what his new society and companions tell him is okay, because they're justifying it? Or is he gonna find his way to true morality in the end? And the, all of the likable characters in this story are, are highly moral people, okay? Even Nancy, who I think is a prostitute, she's sort of the heroine, um, she is defined by her kindness and her compassion towards, towards Oliver, and then we see this Bill Sykes as sort of the villain, and he has um, no compassion and no mercy. So, so we see that in all these stories, and you're gonna see more in this presentation, um, there are these, we see people kind of wrestling over what is, what is the right thing to do. Um, it's the moral law is, is um, how people ought to behave. And C.S. Lewis says, this is not a matter of convenience, okay? Because uh, he gives the example, once again, of uh, a man taking your seat on a train, okay? Now that's inconvenient, okay? But um, I know that I felt, uh, when I was heavily pregnant, 
in Boston and we were riding on the subway, I felt much more indignant if people did not offer me their seat as when I was not pregnant, right? I had a different expectation. They should, they should perceive my context, okay? So it wasn't just a matter of, uh, you know, a convenience to me. It's, it's um, dependent on the context, okay? It also, the moral law doesn't just depend on what pays off for you, and that's really what we see in this story of Oliver Twist, okay? That it pays off to steal from people for these kids. And yet the message of that story is that that's actually, that's actually wrong, okay? Um, and finally, C.S. Lewis says, the moral law isn't just simply what's good for society. And he, he models this conversation. He says, imagine that some person says to another, um, why ought I to be unselfish? And somebody says, well, because it's, it's good for society. If you're unselfish, then, you know, and, and the next person is unselfish, then we can all benefit from an unselfish society. And he says, um, well, why should I care about what's good for society, except when it happens to pay me personally? And he says, the person's going to circle back to that first argument. Well, because you ought to be unselfish. He says, so you can't really get away from this circular reasoning that even, even when we argue, even when we debate, even when we try to hold up other explanations for the moral law, we still come back to this idea that it's there. It's in us. We expect other people to share that same awareness. Um, we can't get away from it, even when there are these other contexts in play. Now, I was thinking about this this week because I'd asked you to reflect on this point. So I was reflecting on this point. I thought, you know, I wonder if I can remember a time when I felt the moral law pressing on me. And I instantly could remember uh, the first time I knew that I was a sinner. Uh, it was when I was in kindergarten. My mom put me in kindergarten late because she tried homeschooling me and my siblings for about three months and then gave up. <laughs> and I was all in elementary school. And so when I started kindergarten, I had one single friend who was my neighbor. He was in my neighborhood, and we used to play with him, and his name was David Coolish. And um, uh, David was, was very kind to me when I, when I started school, even though I was you know, a girl and he was a boy and he would have preferred to play with his friends. He actually was very thoughtful about like sticking with me and playing with me at recess until I had some of my own friends. And um, my mom had told me that David and his family were Mormon. And when I asked her what that meant, she explained it by saying, well, they read the wrong Bible. And, um, and I did, you know, that, that kind of stuck with me. And so, so one day, um, a, you know, a few weeks into kindergarten, after I finally made some friends, I was standing behind my friend Allison Joseph, and I wanted to endear her to me somehow. And so I said, Allison, I have a secret. And I whispered to her, David Coolish reads the wrong Bible. And instantly, I knew that I had betrayed my friend. Even though my mother had never said, that's a secret, don't tell anyone else. Even though, you know, there had been no specific instruction on that point. But I, there was something in me that knew I had said that thing um, to better myself in the eyes of my new friend. But in doing so, I was throwing my very faithful first friend under the bus. And I felt the moral law pressing on me, so much so that I still remember this moment, you know, as an adult, it really made an impression on me. And I was also thinking about um, other people who may, maybe don't prescribe to this Christian mindset. So I thought of my old neighbor, this woman named Monica, who was very, very successful in her job. And she was in charge of giving a presentation 
to, um, I think she gave it in Europe. I mean, it was a very, very top, this huge company, and she had to give a presentation that ultimately recommended um, that thousands of people would be cut from the organization and lose their job. And even though um, she was doing her job, she was doing the job that she'd been charged to do, she was doing it well, um, she, the reason that I know all this is because she had close to a nervous breakdown and came over to our apartment and was sobbing because she felt so racked with guilt over the thought of all of these people losing her jobs. Now, she was not a Christian, but she felt the moral law pressing on her. Um, one of my authors, my job, I work as a ghostwriter, and so I'm, I'm always working with authors who are uh, pre presenting their content to me, teaching me their content, and then I write their books for them. So I'm always learning from really interesting people. One of my current authors is writing a book on leadership, and he's not a Christian. Um, his first concept on leadership is we do the right thing, always. And when I asked him, you know, so how do you know what the right thing is? Like, how are you going to teach your readers to, to know the right thing? And, you know, he gave some reasons, you know, like, well, you got to think about, you know, the ethics of something, you think about what's most um, best for, you know, operations and the company and everything. And he's like, you know, when you really get down to it, it comes down to the mirror of truth. And I was like, what's the mirror of truth? And he says, you know, you get home at the end of the day and you look at yourself in the mirror and you know if you did the right thing. And I'm like, huh. Okay, all right, we'll write it down. But this is, I mean, he, that is, the moral law is his just, is his main argument for his number one leadership principle. And, and he's, you know, this is, he, so those to me, I think, were, um, were compelling ideas of, of the fact that, like, I really think that C.S. Lewis is onto something. I wonder if any of you have a thought of this, a moment where you, where you could see either in someone else or yourself the moral law pressing on you. Anybody have a story they want to share? Fair enough. We'll keep going. Okay. Um, C.S. Lewis makes the point that, that we really expect others to know the rules of the game. And he says, if you're talking about a game of football, um, that you, you expect, you know, if man asked, what was the point of playing football, it would not be much good saying in order to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game. And you would really be only saying that football was football, which is true, but not worth saying. In the same way, if a man asks, what is the point of behaving decently, it is no good replying in order to benefit for society, um, because all you're really saying is that decent behavior is decent behavior, okay? So he's saying that, um, that similar to football, we, we all expect one another to know the same rules, okay? So he concludes this chapter. He says, the moral law is not simply a fact about human behavior in the same way as the law of gravitation is. It is not a mere fancy, for we cannot get rid of the idea, and most of the things we say and think about men would be reduced to nonsense if we did, and it is not simply a statement about how we should like people to behave for our own convenience. Okay? He concludes, the moral law is a real thing, it's not made up by ourselves, it's really there. Okay? So, um, and just one, um, kind of some additional reflections on this. Just to, to really, um, this is my own, I guess, uh, addition to, to C.S. Lewis's points. If you look at literature throughout the ages, you'll see that we have always been compelled 
by these ideas of right and wrong. That, that heroes do the right thing, that villains do the wrong thing. Okay, the oldest piece of literature that we really have, um, have much content of is the Epic of Gilgamesh, okay, which is this ancient Middle Eastern culture. Um, and in this story, uh, the hero, Gilgamesh, um, is a jerk at the start because he's not, ex he's not respecting the, the bridal rights, um, which is the same. So in this culture, um, the king was allowed to um, sleep with the bride first before she got married, okay? And he was abusing that privilege. And so all of the people in the land prayed to the gods, please send someone to contend with Gilgamesh. He's acting in an evil way. And so they send this guy, Enkidu, and then the rest of the story about Gilgamesh, he goes on this epic journey, and he becomes more moral. And at the end, he's sort of this, he's, he's truly heroic, but he started off as this kind of icky guy. Okay? That's this ancient, ancient story. Okay, the Iliad, right? It's all, they, the, the whole Iliad, they are, um, the characters that dishonor the gods are punished. Uh, the characters who are shown to honor the gods consistently are portrayed in a very heroic way, okay? And Hamlet, now, all, tons of Shakespeare's plays deal with this question of morality, okay? Macbeth, there's a new version of Macbeth, and that is, that is all about um, the moral law passing on Macbeth, okay? He kills the king for his own advantage, and then it haunts him, you know, we've got this famous scene of Lady Macbeth out damned in spot, okay, that she can't get rid of this guilt. Well, Hamlet I like even better because um, it's known for its ambiguity, and yet uh, Hamlet is given this charge at the beginning of the play to kill his, his awful uncle. His uncle killed his father, and he's told by his father's ghost, now you need to avenge my death, kill Claudius. But, the, but Hamlet delays for five acts because he's so tortured about, is this the right thing? Was that, a, was that ghost really my dad? Maybe it was a demon. If it's a demon, then I'm doing the wrong thing. And he's like, I've got to do the right thing, but I'm going to confirm it with truth. I'm going to find ways to make sure it's true. And then, I mean, it's just the whole thing is, is, is these spinning riffs on morality. And Shakespeare does that through the whole thing. Okay, and then now, our modern day, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Star Wars, these are stories of good and evil. It's about good fighting against evil, okay? So this idea, this moral law, is almost the defining subject of most of our literature and the stories that have, that have drawn us and interested in us for all of time. Um, however, this, now I'm jumping way ahead of C.S. Lewis because now I'm getting, he doesn't, at this point, he has not brought up the Bible, he has not brought up God, he has not brought up Jesus. He says, I'm not even within miles of Christian theology yet. Okay, now I'm cheating because I am jumping ahead. Okay, but, but Christi Christianity has a really good explanation for how this apparent contradiction exists. Okay, and the idea that, it's the idea that we are made in the image of God, but that we have been warped by sin. Okay? As opposed to most other beings, most other animals or plants on the planet, humans the world over share an awareness of what is good, yet we fail consistently to live according to their principles. We recognize and admire beauty, truth, and goodness. Oh, we are drawn to it, and yet we fail to practice it. Um, this is... I was thinking a lot about some of the some of the things that have come up in our discussions, and I want to I want to kind of offer some ideas about how we see some of these apparent contradictions that some of us have brought up. 
you think about this idea of a moral compass, right? And um, and I remember there, in some movie, there's a there's a guy who puts a metal cup near the compass, and he tells his friend, "We're lost. You buggered the compass." Okay. There are things that we can introduce that will bugger the compass and that will confuse our understanding of what is truly right and truly wrong. Um, our informational diet can help to hone or confuse the indicator of true north. Okay, let's remember that in scripture, Satan is introduced and defined as a liar. Okay? He wants to help us, he wants us to believe that wrong is right and that right is wrong. Okay? And so that's why um, we really encourage at church people to read scripture because that is, that is the compass, right? That is what is going to keep us aligned toward true north. But our informational diet really does have an impact on us. And we see that play out, especially in our polarized country right now, as, um, as social media tailors their algorithms to narrow the informational diet that we are that we are given. I don't know if any of you have seen the, the social media, what's it called? The, the new documentary that's come out about Facebook. You guys know what I'm talking about? The social network. Ugh, anyway, it gets in it gets into all that. Okay. Um, but also trauma can warp but also reveal our sense of right and wrong. Okay? I think of um, of soldiers that come back from war and they, they are carrying trauma with them. They have um, had to do, in the name of loyalty to their country, things that may really press heavy on them afterwards, okay? Um, in the same way that um, a sexual abuse survivor, uh, that trauma that they endure um, is there because, because, they're, because they, they have been wronged in a really profound way, okay? Um, and then finally, I think morality can become calloused in the same way compassion can become calloused, right? You hear of compassion fatigue when we hear about yet another shooting and it just kind of rolls off, rolls over us because we've unfortunately heard of so many of them. Um, my book group is reading a, a book about um, a, a gang kingpin right now who, um, and you know, if you think of, of people who have have committed so many atrocities, um, they get used to it, right? If you if you have embezzled a little and then a little more and then a little more, that's something that you can you can get used to rationalizing. Okay, so these are things that I think are important for us to keep in mind um, as we continue to go forward. Yeah, Kate. I think it's also true that there there are a thousand ways that we have to make these decisions every day. Yeah, things that you know, small little trivial things. I'm sitting here thinking about I have jury duty tomorrow. Mm. Oh. And I I'm doing this rationalization thing in my head. I, I, I was sitting on eight juries in there. Other people would never get called. I've always been there and all that stuff. But I'm now thinking that I can actually answer the question on the form that I have something physically wrong with me that I can't serve but I don't need a doctor. Mm. And even though there's no way that I would actually do that. It, it's far from my body. Yeah. <laughs> it's still depressing. Mm -hmm. I, I can save myself a lot of inconvenience by lying on this form. I never have to talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. But you know, little tiny municipal relatively trivial things. Once you start yeah. down that road, that slippery slope. That's right. That's right. And there's a reason we have the phrase a slippery slope, isn't there? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, Bogart. When you mentioned the loss of the game, mm -hmm. uh, I thought about yesterday. Maria and I went to Mission Bay to walk, to walk about three miles. Mm -hmm. And you know, you see lots of people walking. Almost 90% of the people keep the right. And there's no sign that people keep right. Mm -hmm. But yesterday, there was a marathon okay. going on. And we didn't know. So there were hundreds of people running, sharing the same space. Okay. And I thought about this and I said, we need to move, make space for them, uh, or they have to move because we are here. So I know they pay a fee, mm -hmm. they are doing something good, mm -hmm. it's for a good cause, mm -hmm. but do they expect that we move? When we see hundreds of people coming, mm -hmm. or should they? Mm -hmm. And then they have a station with water. Uh, are we, we allowed to take some water? Should we? <laughs> <laughs> we are sharing the room. Can we have some water? Yeah, can we help ourselves? Is that allowed? <laughs> yeah. And you're, you have to you have to kind of evaluate. So what kind of rules? Yeah. But you're still you're still sensing you're weighing it against your own rules. Yeah. yeah. When I think you know if you think of this compass, you can imagine that there are priorities around them, right? And true north is going to be your your number one priority. Okay. But there will be other you know there's uh, so if if you know if my priority is to to glorify God, okay then that's what I'm weighing my, my decisions against. But if somebody's priority is um, to be happy, then, then that's going to give, you know, that's going to swing their compass in a slightly different way, okay? That doesn't mean that, um, that, that kindness is nowhere on somebody else's compass. It may just, it may not be their, their north. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Scripture weighs in. I, I found this in Romans, and I'm like, oh, man, this, this sheds so much light. Um, these verses are all from the very first chapter from Romans 1. Uh, for his invisible attributes, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay, now, typically, I think of that referring to um, the grandeur of his creation, right? That the, the beauty of the world, the stars, the sunsets, the vastness of the ocean, these are things that point people towards God. They are his invisible attributes that are meant to draw people towards God so that no matter where you are in the world, whether or not you've heard of the Christian God, God is able to recognize whether or not you turn towards that, that sky full of stars and say, wow, thank you to whatever is up there. That this, this idea that these invisible attributes of God are apparent enough that God is able to assess every person's heart in terms of whether or not they, have, they turn to what they know of God, okay? But um, his invisible attributes can certainly be seen within us as well with this moral law, right? Um, other, other examples, we appreciate beauty. There is no survival value in appreciating beauty in fact, if anything, there's, there's anti-survival value because if I'm admiring a sunset and a bear runs out of the woods, then I'm not going to run away as fast as I should, right? Um, we create art. Once it, like, what, what compels us to create beautiful things, okay? Except maybe that we were created by an artist ourselves, okay? But there's no, there's no survival um, 
in, there's no survival value in creating art. Um, we commit acts of altruism. We do good just for the heck of it. Um, these are things that, that shouldn't exist if we are mere matter, okay? Uh, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, that's this idea that, um, that God will, if you continue to turn towards darkness or to turn towards lies, that God will allow you to go in that direction. Okay, that can explain maybe why we see some of the immorality that we see. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree, they not only do what ought not to be done, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, before any of us start to get judgmental about those people, chapter 2 is all about how, by the way, all of us fall into this category, okay? Um, so, chapter 4, what lies behind the law. I need to pick up my piece so that we have time to discuss. Okay, um, gosh, we've only got 20 minutes left. I'm wondering you if we should just it. discuss. Okay, okay. We've got four more slides. We'll go fast. Okay. Uh, so he says there's the materialist view. He's like, so the question is, how did we all get here? How, where did this moral law come from? He says, all right. So, so let's talk about what lies behind the law. He says, now, there are, there are basically two views of how everybody got here. One's the materialist view, which is the Big Bang Theory, basically. That's not what he says, but it's this idea that matter has always existed. Um, we, you know, there was a spectacular explosion, and through a series of coincidences that were fantastic and amazing, we have evolved to what we are today, okay? There was no intelligent force behind it, okay? It was just matter. That's option one, materialist view. Option two, the religious view. So that's the idea that there's something more like a mind that actually has the purpose to create and to perpetuate and to propel creation into its current state. And he said, that's what we're going to call the religious view. And he said, there's another kind of, he calls it like a soft soap view, which is sort of this in-between idea, which is this idea that, that within all this, this mass of matter, the life wants to exist. Okay, There's a force of life that is pushing um, matter towards evolution and, and progression and all the rest. And he says, no, that's dumb, because you just want the perks of the the intelligent design you you know you want to believe that there's a purpose out there but you don't want to be held accountable to it so says, that's dumb it's you know pick pick one or the other okay. um then he says okay let's think about the purpose of science the purpose of science is to observe and through through observation experimentation how things behave he says but why anything came to be or whether or not there may be something behind the things which science observes is not a scientific question, okay? He says, um, supposing science ever became complete so that it knew every single thing in the whole universe, is it not plain that the questions, why is there a universe? Why does it go on as it does? Has it any meaning would remain just as they were, okay? So he says, now the position will be quite hopeless, but for this, there is one thing, and only one, in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is us, right? He says man, but I'm a woman, so I'm going to say us, humans, okay? <laughs> um, he says, um, we can do more to, um, than just external observation um, with us. 
I, I did speaking of my, my aliens observing the human race, right? As near as I can tell, they're fighting over which religion is the most peaceful. <laughs> Don't you think? I think? I think if aliens were to observe us, I think that they would conclude that, that this is our God, because this is what we are so mesmerized in all day long, right? Um, so we, um, so even though our behavior doesn't seem to indicate, okay, that there's a moral law working within us, we know that there is, because we feel it, okay? Um, he says, let me make sure I'm presenting this argument accurately, okay? Anyone studying man from the outside, uh, as we study electricity, um, would never get the slightest evidence that we had this moral law. Uh, for his observations would only show what we did, and the moral law is about what we ought to do, okay? Um, so, the position of the question then is like this. We want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is for no reason, a materialist view, or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would not be one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find it. Okay? Now, this is, I think, the clearest way he explains this is because he, he mentions an architect. He says, okay, um, you're not going to find proof of the architect in the house they make. Okay, the architect isn't going to be holding up a wall or acting as a door. Okay, the architect isn't going to be in there. The signs of their work will be everywhere, but the architect themselves isn't in the house. In the same way, he says, okay, the house is our universe. God, if there is a God, is going to, if there is a force that contributed to the design of this, they're going to be outside of it. Okay, he says, so we're never going to be able to use science to observe this thing which is outside the universe completely. Okay? Says, but because we are people, we can pay attention to what's happening inside us because we have inside information. Okay? So, so we, um, the only way in which we get expected to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. Okay? There's something happening in here it doesn't feel like it's for me, because if it's just about me, if I want to be selfish, I'm going to do this. But there's something that seems to be urging me to do something. To, where, where, where does that come from? Okay, that's what he's, he's, he's getting us to look at that force. Um, I love this analogy. He says, um, suppose someone asks me when I see a man in a blue uniform going down the street, leaving little paper packets at each house, why I suppose that they contain letters. I should reply, well, because whenever he leaves a similar little packet for me, I find it does contain a letter. If he objected, but you've never seen all those letters which everybody else is getting, I should say, well, of course not, and I shouldn't expect to because they're not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the ones I am allowed to open. The only packet I am allowed to open is human beings. When I do, especially when I open that particular person called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own that I am under a law, that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. So um, he says it's more like a mind than it is anything else uh, we know. You can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instructions. Um, and he says, do not think I'm going faster than I really am. I'm not yet within 100 miles of the God of Christian theology. All I've got to do is a something which is directing the universe, which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable 
when I do wrong. Okay, <laughs> lecture's done. I think we have like 10 minutes. 15 minutes, okay. Um, can I have my lovely assistant read pass out okay, the thing? Yeah, sure. Okay, thanks. And I'm gonna take our slides back to statement. We're going to probably skip over some of these just for the sake of time, the ones that are similar. Statement one and statement two are pretty similar. So once you have your sheet, okay, um, you're going to represent that person. Uh, this side is agree. This side is disagree. Um, if you would like to stay seated and relax, feel free. But if you are up for moving, that would be a helpful thing to do. Please go to the side represented by your sheet. This side is disagree. It looks like you're over there, Valerie. You're on the disagree side too. Okay. Um, it looks like most people disagree with this. Okay. Um, which means you all think, apparently, everybody who's holding these sheets, that we do not consistently do the right thing. I agree with the disagree. Yeah. How about, wh why would anybody possibly agree with the statement? H human beings do consistently do the right thing. Any ideas on this half of the room? You can observe. What was that, Zoya? So, why would someone agree with the statement that humans consistently do the right thing? It's me. <laughs> <laughs> Society has persisted. What was that, Anne? Society has persisted, and we do have some relatively successful governments and okay. systems. Okay. So the fact, when you look at this over the course of history, the course of history actually does lead us towards progress. So actually, if you're looking at the law of averages, yeah, maybe we're maybe we're progressing. Okay, that's a great comment. Thanks. I, I <laughs> when people do not understand mm -hmm. what is right and what is wrong, and you have a huge amount of people in the world today that do not understand what is right. Okay. So the idea here is that there, there actually are a huge amount of people in this world who simply do not understand right from wrong. And that would, that would contradict C.S. Lewis's main argument, because he's saying that regardless of where you come from, um, you do have a sense of what is good, of what is kind, of what is upstanding, and, and you don't do that. And that's why I would disagree with you. Yeah. Not everything that C.S. Lewis said is correct. <laughs> why? He was looking at one side of the world. He did not look at the entire six continent. When you observe the entire six continent, how people behave, how civilization came about, what what they believed before, and what they believe now, then you can come up with certain statements. Mm -hmm. I do not agree with most of CRC. Say. Okay. Um. I think he did make an effort to study, yes, to study other cultures. He doesn't include that research in this, 
but he does say, I have compiled that evidence in, in another book called The Abolition of Man, it's in the appendix. But I, so I wonder, let me, let me, let me play devil's advocate for a second. And, and I, I wonder if we can think of a context that would be relevant in any culture all over the world. So I'm thinking maybe eating, okay? Sharing, sharing a meal, okay? If, um, if someone were to show up to a, a, a large meal and, and very, very hungry, um, and was clearly struggling and, and not doing well, would most of the people at that meal kind of, and, and I, I really appreciate the, the perspective that you're bringing our class, Malia, because you, um, you, do, you are aware of, of a part of the world that most of us are not familiar with. So, um, so I'll rely on your expertise here, but would most of the people at that meal have the sense that it would be the right thing to do to offer this person some food? What do you think? It depends on the group. And if that group knows who you are, they might give you something to allow you to enter. Okay. Is Do you think that might be because um, oftentimes our, our, our tribal allegiances, okay, our sense of um, what we're going to be, you know, I think of the, the, um, the sharks and the jets, right? Like, or the, the Democrats or the Republicans. We start to convince ourselves that um, that these people are worthy of our respect and kindness. These people are not worthy of our respect and kindness. But a child that may not have uh, buggered the compass in that way, that may not have had these influences, um, would a child at that gathering look at that person and think we should help them? No, would a child is different because the child is innocent. What mm -hmm. well, that's people who are who supposed to do better and refuses to do what is right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I think what so I I am very very grateful to you for speaking up and sharing this point. I think for me. I recognize some of those other forces at play in this illustration, which is that as adults, we can find ways to rationalize um, what is maybe not truly the right thing. Um, and I think children um, often have the eyes to see what is right because they have been less influenced by, by perhaps what, what is considered corrupt. And I know that, you know, I can remember a moment when Ramona, as a three or four year old, saw a homeless person and said, we need to help them. They don't have, they don't have a pillow. They don't have a blanket. Let's go get our pillows and our blankets. And, and as an adult, I, I had my laundry list of, it, oh, well, we don't want to give them Grandma Maggie's quilt. She, she makes, that's a homey quilt that she made for, for you. And well, you know, okay, let's go, you know, at a later date, we'll go buy pillows and we'll buy blankets and we'll give them to person, which I never did, okay? She shamed me in that moment because she knew better. And she spoke aloud what I knew, what I knew deep down. Yes? I was thinking with, with this statement, it, um, I can see the, the other side if, if you say we consistently do certain right things. Okay. For example, if we take the, the um, example of traffic, mm -hmm. it seems like most of the time we tend to drive on the correct side, right? <laughs> But at the same time, most of us tend to speak. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to red lights, most of us um, tend to stop at red lights. Mm -hmm. 
But when it comes to stop signs, most of us tend to roll. So it, it really depends. I mean, I guess if you're looking at certain examples, yeah, there are certain things that we tend to consistently do right, and then there are certain things that we tend to consistently not do right. That's true. But I think, um, I think maybe most of us can agree that if um, that, that, that perhaps it's not similar to the law of gravity, because we don't do it every single time. Every time I drop a pen, I know it's going to fall to the ground. Okay? I don't trust that every single time I am presented with a moral decision, I will make the right decision. I will do the right thing. Okay? There will be some inconsistency there. Yeah. yeah I think scientifically, if our observation is our tribe, then we're going to, we're going to say, well, we consistently do the right thing. Because we have bought into those tribal wars and, and, and laws. Yes, the tribe is doing that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we're we're right on we're right on track. Yeah, yeah. The other side. Yeah. yeah. And if I look at my heart, it's got consistent evil stuff in it too. I may be doing the right thing, but in my heart, I have jealousy and envy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all these things I have to confess on Sunday. Yeah. But and I want to mention one other thing when I heard this lady share this. The Holocaust, but even in those things, some of those people, like Hitler, thought apparently they were doing the right thing. I don't know, even though it was horrific, wrong. I I, I don't know. I can't explain Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think for me, my understanding of that, um, it's hard for me to explain that without believing in something like Satan. Um, without believing that there is a really persuasive liar that is able to convince a lot of people uh, that something like genocide is could be good. And teaches children to do that, make them the soldiers and little children. Yeah. Um, okay, let's jump ahead. Um, we're going to skip this one just because it's very, it's really just an, a different iteration of the last one. Um, let's skip that one too. Let's let's do this one. Our sense of right and wrong is a mere fancy and it's easy to get rid of. So statement four, look at look at four on your sheet. Go to where four is. Most of us are still in disagree. Um, Andrew, my friend, you moved. Why do you think somebody would um, agree with this? Uh, well, I would say that. Uh, a lot of it is because people's actions are dictated by their own will and their own desires. And uh, so if they don't have something that supports a specific uh, thing against their desires, they will follow them. So what is right and wrong is situation. Yeah. Depending on who's there, who's surrounding you, what is going on, could change uh, what is right and wrong in that moment. Okay, okay, so because we are mostly driven, by our own whims, um, and circumstances can change those whims, um, maybe somebody would agree with this. Why would someone disagree with us? Sunny, were you going to? No, I, I was going to agree because of, of our, because of our alliances with groups. Okay. And we let that, you know, skew your own, your own thinking. What is okay. That's kind of the, the herd mentality that CSLs was talking about a little bit. Valerie. I say because of conscience, even though when I'm doing those things in the people pleasing peer group, then I know it's wrong in my heart when I'm trying to look good with them. In my heart, I know it's wrong. Yeah. 
I remember um, I joined a sorority when I was in college, and um, I inadvertently joined a party house. I was not really, I was not at all into partying, um, but but my my tribe was, and um, there were a number of girls who um, who who joined the house as Christians, and I would always kind of try to touch base with them and like, hey, I'm here for you, and a lot of those girls would um, fall into the tribe kind of uh, behavior and would start partying hard. And, and, and several of those girls around sophomore and junior year realized, um, I hate who I am right now. I do not like what I've become, and um, would try to kind of start stop partying and start living in a different way. And it was hard for them because they had claimed this identity of, of being one of the tribe and doing everything that the tribe did. That's how they formed all their friendships. And now as they were trying to kind of do something different, their friends were saying, you're not fun anymore. You know, I don't, I don't like you. And so, um, so I, think, I think there is, even above this tribal mentality, um, there's something else at work in us that wants to have a say. I don't think that we can explain it all uh, through simple whims because there are times where I want to do something and yet there is something in me that says that's not the right thing to do. Um, experience all that all the time as a parent. I want to just <laughs> leave you to your own devices right now, but I know you need here. Um, okay, this is an important one too. What time are we at? Um, it's 11.30. Okay, well, um, next week we are taking uh, next week off. It's a fellowship Sunday, so we'll pick up in two weeks. Um, I think I still have some schedules if you don't have a schedule. Um, let me just look at the schedule. Oh, the schedule's right here. Let me just tell you what we're reading for, for two weeks. So um, next chapter is just one chapter we have caused to be uneasy. So we'll pick up with these additional statements then. Okay? Okay. Um, I will take your sheets back now. Um, thank you for coming. And um, I'm just going to say a, a very quick prayer to close. Actually, before everybody starts... Um, Jumping around. Um, Lord, we, um, I'm just reminded of, of how, um, Lord, I, I pray that we would come to you with humility, recognizing that um, as, as much as we will try to comprehend you and seek out uh, truth, uh, you, you are mysterious, Lord, and your people are mysterious. So God, I pray that as we continue to uh, dig into C.S. Lewis's book and consider our own experiences and our own uh, ideas and those of others. Uh, would you give us wisdom and would you give us humility? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.